I will invite you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me in Acts chapter 5. This morning we have the joy and privilege of looking together at a summary section in the book of Acts. And that summary section is about the progress of the gospel. If you'll note the song that we sang, O Glorious Day, all of this is going to culminate as the gospel progresses until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God and the Scripture must be preached to the ends of the earth. And in the end, as the Lord tells us in Luke chapter 24, will come. I learned something as a child, spending time at the beach. Now, this is vacation season, right? I can look out across the auditorium and tell that we've got some holes. It's usually, usually more people here probably. Last week, and then we had a Memorial Day. People are vacationing. When I was growing up, we would take our vacations to Myrtle Beach. Anybody ever been there? That's a long way from here. I don't know if you can get there from here or not. But we would travel around five hours with my grandparents and my parents and my brother and I. And we'd spend about a week at the beach. And it always kind of coincided with the 4th of July. We try to avoid going places on the 4th now. But back in the day, that was the time you went. But I learned something as a child, as you make your way out into the ocean, the deeper you get into the ocean, you begin to navigate, and when you're 9 or 10 years of age, you have waves to deal with. And I learned that they can be quite menacing. Not like the ones on the Pacific, of course, but nonetheless, when you're little, they can drown you, suck you out and back and forth if you're not anticipating, but I learned if I would take a dive through that wave, I'd pop up on the other side. That was refreshing, right? Only to get ready for the next wave. Well, that's what you have in the book of Acts. You have wave after wave of persecution. Why? Because that's the way God designed the church to flourish. Don't miss that. The book of Acts is about the conquest of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing will stop that. But God allows those waves of persecution to come. Sometimes from without. And even sometimes there's suppression inside the church. Like what we saw last time I preached on Ananias and Sapphira. Wave after wave after wave of persecution would come. But the church of the living God and the conquest of the kingdom and the Lord Jesus Christ would pop up freer. And more alive than ever before. Every single time a wave of persecution came. Romans 8, 36 and 37. Here's what Paul says about Christians living in a hostile world. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquering through him who loved us. Now folks, do you find that statement kind of terrifying? But also comforting? That we are slaughtered all the day long when you're standing for Christ. But at the same time, we are overwhelmingly conquering through Him. So we are powerless, yet we cannot be defeated. We, are, we face fierce opposition for the gospel, yet we should not fear. The Lord does not require anybody in this building to be a superhuman Uh, or to respond with superhuman strength or genius-level intelligence. All He wants you to do as a child of God is to be faithful to the mission. To be faithful to proclaim the gospel in your generation. So this segment of Luke's narrative opens with a summary statement 
of the rise of the church over the period of a several weeks or several months. Do you remember Acts 1-8? Y'all remember that? You shall receive when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We really haven't returned to that necessary model until you get to 5, 12 through 16. And then you begin, Luke gives you a summary of how that gospel is beginning to progress. Neighbors, neighborhood towns are coming from 30 and 40 miles away into Jerusalem to hear the gospel. And so, do you remember how the apostles prayed and the disciples? God, give us boldness to speak your word. Did God answer that prayer? You better believe it. Uh, Acts 4.29, boldness to speak, and God is answering that prayer. However, the fact remains that this interior summary is given in, in Acts 4.32-37, through 37, and we began, to, we began to see the inner workings of the church. And then when you get to 5.12-16, through 16, we have this new summary of the, the impact of the gospel in Jerusalem and beyond. The next wave of persecution is on the way. If we block out this pericope in Acts, it would really go from Acts 5.12 down through verse 42 to the end of the section. So there's another wave of persecution on the way. And how are the people of God going to respond to this wave? Uh, they pray to the Lord. They ask them, God, you look on their threats. But in turn, give us boldness to preach and teach the word. So Acts, our text for today, verses 12 through 16, we see the impact of the Lord God working through His apostles. Let's look at it together. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, the progress of the gospel. The text reads, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None, check this out, this is the outside world looking into the church. None of the rest dared join them. But the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. To God be the glory. What a summary of the progression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you read this, and you were prone to think somehow that the apostles were simply magical workers. They seemed to, be, uh, seemed to have some kind of magical powers. You missed the whole point of the book of Acts. What's Acts about? It's about the risen Lord and the progression of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Does everybody agree with that? It's the conquest of the kingdom. So folks, it's not the apostles on the move. God is on the move. God is working through the lives of these men as His messengers for this particular time. And here's what we find out that's even more miraculous than the signs and wonders. Everybody meeting on Solomon's portico was all together in one accord. Now, we're probably 15 to 20,000 people gathered. And Solomon's porch was probably the best place and the largest place where this many people could gather. And so we estimate that at least 15,000 people at this time were coming together. And they were all together in one accord. That's an amazing thing. They were all together for one purpose. 
There's this spirit-filled, profound unity, even in this large of an assembly of people. What a gift from God. Verses 13 and 14 give us a summary from those who were on the outside looking in. The text says that none of the rest of them dared to join them. We believe that the rest of them were probably unbelievers. It means that they dare not join the membership of First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. Right? Now we all know what event took place right before this summary statement, correct? Do I need to preach Ananias and Sapphira again? The people would have been keenly aware that something took place in the life of the church. There's some life-threatening holiness going on in that church. There are serious people that are serious about their God because He's serious. And that's what the people would know. Everyone would recognize. Serious group of people worshiping a serious God. And there was no room for hypocrisy, no room for lying, no room for deceit. God required honesty in His body, integrity among His people. And the lack of those things cost Ananias and Sapphira their lives. Those outside knew what was going on on the inside, and they probably thought to themselves, you know what, I'm a pretty religious man or woman, but I'm not joining those people. Just not going to do it. So they didn't. And then Luke mentions people held in high esteem, or held them in high esteem. Most people believe that the people looking in that would dare not join are probably the same ones that looked in and thought, well... I'm not going to join them, but I esteem them pretty highly. Now, it's possible that this is a different group of people. Even though the commitment level of First Baptist Jerusalem, you know, I'm just calling it that. That's not really the name. Some of you are looking at me kind of strange. You're probably thinking, wasn't there Baptists back then? No, they were Christians back then, right, that believed the Word of God. But even though they looked in and the, the level of commitment was scary, And they knew that that church manifested the very power of God over and over again. Why? Because the Word of God was preached. And most people were holding the Word of God at arm's length. But many looked on to this group of people with incredible esteem. Would that be the case in the United States of America? People are scared to join, but they hold us in high esteem because we fear our God and we preach the Word. That's what we need, right? The people looked on to them, and they shied away from life-threatening holiness. This is exactly what they saw in the lives of the ones who were true followers of Christ. It was not some social club gathered around a bunch of fishermen. That's not what the church was. It was a group of people who were dead earnest in their commitment to Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And this caused people to conclude that the kind of life-threatening holiness exemplified in that body was not worth giving your life for. Or it wasn't worth identifying with. This is going to cost us way too much. This life-threatening holiness, you know what we mean by that. You can't come into contact with Christ and encounter Him personally as your Lord and it not make a difference in your life. It's going to transform you and it's going to transform those who are around you. And Luke also reminds us that more And more believers were being added to the church. Do y'all see what's going on? The the gospel is progressing. Uh, Not everybody's going to join in with the gospel. Not everybody's going to be saved. Some are going to look on and say, Ooh, no way am I joining this group. And others are going to say, Well, I hold them in high, high esteem. 
But all the time, God is in the saving business. And He's saving souls. The text says large groups of men and women. They started with 120. And now they had this massive influx of people. People were trusting Jesus left and right. And added to the church the one that practiced life-threatening holiness. Dealing with a God that was very serious. That if you lied against Him, showed hypocrisy toward the Holy Spirit of God, God might strike you dead. Some of you are looking at me strange. Ananias and Sapphira, read it again. Acts 5, 1 through 12. It's there in the text for a reason. For a reason. So many people were being gripped by the gospel. Changed by the gospel of Christ. Added to the church. Now, what a huge blessing to the apostles, right? Uh, when you would see this kind of influx of people. Body, people being saved and added to the body. But then again, you've got some people on the other hand that would not join them. And people realizing that these people were so committed, holding them in high esteem. The people coming through the doors in multitudes, trusting Jesus Christ, joining this believing group. F.F. Bruce, the great scholar, said, At this point, they scared off all except the totally committed. Now let's suppose that out on our marquee in front of this church, we put up only the most committed are welcome. Or we exist to scare off the uncommitted. Now, how will we be viewed? Well, number one, our soteriology is messed up because we think that if someone's going to be saved, they have to come to this building. Although God has told you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Outside of this church. We've got that messed up. What this is, is the huddle where we get tooled to do evangelism and love God and conform to the image of Jesus, out there in the world is where you run the plays during the week. Is that understood? Y'all following with me? And so, F.F. Bruce has a point. What kind of model do we see going on in the churches, even in our area? Would, how, would, how would that philosophy, how would this philosophy of scaring off everyone except the committed, how does that philosophy work in the U.S. today? How does it work in Ozark? How does it work in Springfield? What kind of churches are we producing? Let's scare off everybody except the really truly committed. Well, folks, that was the apostolic church. That's what you're reading in the book of Acts. Do you think they understood what, what they were called of God to do? Now listen to this text, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. Listen closely. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, He spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. Verse 15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, we are a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Do you think it ever entered the mind, minds of those in the church of Jerusalem in the first century, that they were an aroma of life to those who were being saved, and they were an aroma of death to those who were perishing? They never tried to adjust the smell. Everybody listening? They never tried to adjust the smell. They never tried to put perfume on the aroma of death. They simply let the smell be the smell. 
And they let God decide if this is going to be an aroma of life to those who are saved, yet an aroma of death to those who would reject Jesus Christ. Their job was to faithfully admit the odor. How, do, how does First Baptist Church fit that? How, how do we fit that individually as children of God? We try in every way we possibly can to perfume the aroma of death. We try to downplay the truth of the gospel so that we can draw crowds. God, help us. It's not about drawing crowds. It's about preaching the Word of God. If two of you come next Sunday morning, I promise you, I'll probably have to run vinyl siding for a salary, but I'm going to preach the book, right? We're going to preach the Word, and we're going we're to be that aroma of death to those. Why? Because hell is real. Dying without Jesus is real, and that's exactly what this text is reminding us of. What kind, what are we seeking to draw? Is it a crowd? Well, the fact of the matter is this church had some life-threatening holiness. Some people would not dare join them. Others held them in high esteem. The power and holiness of God alarmed some people. Some were frightened away, but others were drawn to the faith. That's the way we want to be. We want to be that kind of church. This is why we should never get upset when we see people come to this church and then they leave. If it's because that we seem to be too serious for Christ or the preacher's a little too serious in his preaching, then that's okay if they go, folks. That's totally okay if they go. We're not going to dumb down the message. We're not going to perfume the aroma of death. They may say, well, you know what? This church is not man-centered enough. Thank the Lord we're not. We want to be God-centered. So we should not shy away from this kind of level of commitment. Our life-threatening holiness very well may scare some people off. But isn't it awesome that some people come into this fellowship and they think, in normal circumstances, I would never hang around with these kinds of people. But there's just something about their God, and there's something about that church, and I can't stay away from it. That's what we want around here. Verses 15 and 16 are remarkable. The multitudes are sick. Some are. Some diseased. They're placed on cots. They're carried out into the streets so that if by chance Peter would walk by, possibly they could be healed by his shadow. Now, your Copelands and your Benny Hens and your Rod Parsleys, those guys love this, don't they? But in our teaching, we understand that some of the things in the, in the book of Acts are prescriptive, and we should, we're prescribed to do them. But some are descriptive, and it's describing how God was manifesting his power. You know, your health and wealth guys love to get their handkerchiefs, don't they? They'll send you one in the mail. But folks, have you ever seen one try to market their shadow? Have you? Any marketing of a shadow? Uh, this is not normative, folks. This is uh, very peculiar. It is absolutely peculiar and particular for this particular time. Do you remember the woman who had an issue of blood? She said, if I could simply touch the hem of his garment, I might be healed. So, she, did she act in superstition or did she act in faith? Well, Jesus says how she acted. She acted in faith. And that's what's going on here. It was a demonstration of great faith. Peter's shadow could save or heal no one. 
But their attitude was, it would be sufficient to heal if I have my faith in Jesus Christ. That's the difference. It is a, there are no divine healers. There's only one divine healer, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is present. He is working. What an awesome thing for the Lord to be working in those suburbs of Jerusalem. And people are coming from all over the place, beyond borders of Jerusalem. And they're in their local setting. And the message of the risen Christ is spreading to the ends of the earth. And the text says that all were being healed. Folks, again, this is not normative. As a matter of fact, this won't even be maintained throughout the book of Acts. Chart through here chronologically, and you'll find out that Paul will have a thorn in the flesh that he can't get rid of. He'll have to leave companions behind because they're sick. And though he prayed for them, they were not healed. He had to pray that some of them would remain alive. He did not tell them to put their hands out to the TV and pray. Like your televangelists do in our day. This was no doubt unique for the apostolic era. Now I have two points of application and now I'm done. Okay, here's the first one. As the gospel progresses, miracles authenticated the message and the messengers. Notice that. The gospel is progressing and the message is authenticated by the Lord God through the hands of the apostles. So that's important for us to think. The authentic authentication was the message that was preached and the messengers that were carrying the message. The miracles would not even remain throughout the day. Miracles authenticated by the message and the messengers. Listen to what Paul said about that. 2 Corinthians 12, 12 says, The signs of a true apostle were not that he preached on TV. The sign of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience with signs and wonders and mighty works. And now listen to Hebrews for help. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So there were epochs of time and seasons where God worked in particular ways. You think about Elijah and Elisha. Not every epoch of time was accompanied by signs and wonders. But at the resurrection of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit and the embryonic stages of the early church, we have the gospel progressing and we have the Lord our God using the apostles and signs and wonders to authenticate the message of the gospel to change a life and the messengers themselves. Now, again, a lot of charismatics want to use selective normativity. In other words, they want to select the parts of Acts they want to be normative and leave out the ones they don't want to be normative, right? I don't know of too many churches today who are marketing the fact that you've come to our church and you, and you give an offering and you make people think you're giving more than you gave that you might die. Ananias and Sapphira, right? Nobody's marketing that today are saying that, you know what, we've had people die in our congregation during the service because of sin. Well, folks, that's what happened in Acts. So if Acts 5, if everything else is normative in Acts, then that needs to be normative, right? So you, don't, you can't do that. We know that God can do the supernatural anytime He chooses. And if you're alive today, He has done the supernatural. 
right? He's healed you of all your diseases. If Mr. George lives today, let's be honest, if he don't, he's going to heaven with Jesus. But if Mr. George lives today, you know why he's living? Because God heals us of all of our diseases. The psalmist said that. So God can do super, the supernatural anytime he wants to. But God is more concerned with the message of the gospel. And that's why it was accompanied by signs and wonders. The flow of redemption was working. And God was doing it and authenticating the message through apostles by signs, wonders, and miracles. Here's the second thing. Not only is the message authenticated with the, with the messengers through the Lord, but as the gospel progresses, a picture of a spirit-filled assembly emerges. And don't we want to be that? Don't we want to be a spirit-filled congregation? As a matter of fact, the greatest thing I can offer you today is a spirit-filled pastor. That is the greatest thing I can offer you. A pastor that's consumed and contagious and conformed to the Word of God in such a way that my heart's desire is to be controlled by the Spirit, to lead you with integrity of heart, skillfulness of hands. Those are things that you need to pray that your pastor will be controlled by the Spirit. But don't we want to be a life-threatening assembly, right, of holiness, one that the, the risen Christ has affected us, and we know that we are an aroma of life to those who are being saved, and we're the aroma of death to those who are perishing, and God has to decide who's living and who's perishing. That's up to our God. When people come into this congregation, when they trust Jesus, when they're joined to this assembly, we don't need to shy away from the fact that we have high standards. Why? Because we have biblical standards. Some will be frightened away, others will be graciously attracted to the real thing. And when that real thing is manifested, again, some will be frightened away, others will be attracted. So the gospel progresses, right, to the ends of the earth. The authenticated message and the messengers. And today, here's one thing we know for sure. The message of the gospel is authenticated by those who preach this book. Faith cometh by and hearing by the word. And that's how God has worked it so that the gospel progresses to the ends of the earth. Not gimmicks, not shows, but the preached word of God. You do it. How is the message authenticated today? By the man of God standing in the pulpit preaching the word of God. Not just here. We're not talking about just behind this. But when you go out into the streets and the highways and the byways and you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in its totality, the Jesus of the Bible... That's what God authenticates. There's no other name given among heaven, right? Acts 4.12, whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. And also, as the gospel progresses, we get the picture of a church where the Spirit of God reigns. And that's what we want in this church, where the Spirit of God reigns. They were unafraid of commitment, and they were unswervingly committed to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need those things. In conclusion... These people, upon receiving the Holy Spirit with power and wisdom, became followers of Jesus Christ, and they began to see the Messiah and the mission a lot differently after the resurrection. Right? And here's what's going on. They now had the transforming mind of Christ, and they had the gospel in their hearts and lives. And as we look into chapter 5, through the duration, beginning in verse 12, all the way to the end, we're going to do that in the next few weeks, we see emerging persecution. We see those disciples with literal scars, 39 whippings, 39 lashes to them. When they took their shirt off, you'd see it on the back and the front. They were scars that they bore 
for Jesus. And you know what's awesome? They never cursed the Lord. They rejoiced. As a matter of fact, they called themselves worthy to have been persecuted for the cause of Christ. So, the will of God will oftentimes set you up against the opinion of this world. Right? It won't set you up with it. It'll set you against it. God might even call you to be poor as dirt. As we used to say, as poor as Job's turkey. He may very well do that. He may call you to suffer rejection and sorrow. He might call you to endure outrageous injustice and maybe even die like his apostles did. And furthermore, like the Son of God did for us. Isaac Watts expressed this well in one of his great hymns. He first published it three centuries ago. Listen to it. Am I a soldier of the cross? Am I a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own His cause? Or blush to speak His name? Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Sure, I must fight if I would reign. God, increase my courage. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by the Word of God. Don't you like that? I love this. In light of this sermon, and I hope this is your attitude, God, increase my faith. God, increase my courage for you, Lord. Help me bear the toil, whatever I need to bear, so that your name is magnified in me. And by all means, God, support it by your word, right? Because his word never fails. As a matter of fact, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The progress of the gospel. Do you see how uniquely situated we are here in Ozark, Missouri? Why are we here, if you're saved? So that the gospel will progress. God's going to do it, but don't you want to be part of it? God, give me the courage to speak. Give me the courage to be all that you would have me to be. Don't be afraid of commitment. By all means, folks, look what he did for you on the cross of Calvary. Don't be afraid of commitment. Father, we thank you for the word. God, we just lift up, Mr. George, Lord, all of our hearts and minds are thinking of him. And Lord, you make no mistakes, but Lord, in the midst of this service, Father, you could have spoken to the heart of someone in this church. Maybe there's a commitment that's just been missing in the lives of some of the people in our congregation. It's so easy, Lord, uh, to, for church to become ho-hum. We open the doors on Sunday, we hear some gospel facts, we go home without ever having a life-transforming experience. But Lord, my prayer is that we'll get very tired of being stirred, start being changed. God, would you help us be a church where the Spirit of God reigns, where we're not afraid of life-threatening holiness, where we serve a serious God who loves us, where we have a joy that's unlike anything the world has to offer. We experience joy unspeakable and full of glory. All because of Jesus. And God, by all means, Father, would you help us to be willing to speak the gospel and to see it progress to the ends of the earth. Let this church be a part of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.